Hello and welcome to the Inside Social Work podcast where we take a peek behind the scenes into different fields of social work, engage and inspire practitioners, translate research into practice and encourage lifelong learning. I'm your host, Marie Vakakis. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's podcast episode. Hello everybody, I hope you're doing well and you've had a really nice weekend. It's a bit chilly here in Melbourne today and we've just um, survived another week of stage 3 lockdowns and we're all about to start sporting a new fashion item so get ready to see some masks on everybody. This week's episode I chat with Louise Pearson and we were talking about loss and grief associated with uh, disability. So how that impacts those going through uh, the system, service users, their friends, their families, their carers. And Louise shares with the audience some of her experience as a person who has vision impairment and how she's used that to connect with clients and also to challenge them to adjust their thinking and be a little bit more considerate of what they can take responsibility for. Some really interesting things that Louise has to say. She's got an incredible social work journey and a lot of really amazing experience. And I hope you find her story uh, inspiring and you take something away from it. Here is my interview with Louise. Hello and welcome to episode 31 of the Inside Social Work podcast. I can't believe we made it this far. I am so excited. Today's guest is Louise Pearson and Louise has a wealth of knowledge and experience but I'll let her tell us all about that. Welcome Louise. Thank you Marie. Do you want to share with the audience a bit about your journey? Sure. Um, Well I started off um, life knowing that I probably wanted to be a social worker, I'd gone through all sorts of different things on the way there, um, including the fact that I was, I was thinking about law, but, um, I, I, um, went to La Trobe University, did a um, Bachelor of Arts in Social Science and, um, then went to La Trobe for my social work degree in the early nineties. So that tells you something about how old I am. How did we win over, win you over from law? Well, um, I guess I'm a fairly robust person, Marie, and not much worries me. And unfortunately, I had a friend who was a victim of family violence when I was about 18, I guess. And her father would take off the leather belt and strap her sister and her mum and herself. And I said to her one when this was about to happen on the telephone, get the belt and hit him back. And I did. And she did, I should say. And he never hit her again, but I could have got her killed uh, with that sort of advice, <laughs> not knowing very much about what I was about. And uh, so after that night, I felt like I needed to know far more about what I was saying and um, decided to, to go into social work. Wow. And um, so when I did, so I, I, I then went off and did some volunteer work and worked for the um, WIRE Women's Information and um, 
Lifeline and a couple of places like that. And that was really amazing education, I guess, as to what, you know, people deal with and the difficulties that people have. Um, and as a young blind social worker, how, um, and I wasn't a social worker until after I'd done my volunteer work, but, you know, the, the sorts of um, difficulties that I would face coming into the profession. Um, and so when I qualified as a social worker, I thought that I was going to save the world in um, from domestic violence. Um, not quite single-handedly, but I was going to have a big part in that. Uh, only there were no jobs in the chosen area that certainly I was able to land. And I applied for a position, not really wanting it, with the Epilepsy Foundation for days. And I was 10 months into our graduation year. I was at the same time finishing off my arts degree. So I actually, unfortunately, didn't qualify as, or fortunately didn't qualify as unemployed. Um, but I wasn't the last person in our year to get a, a position. And I landed the job at the Epilepsy Foundation. And after I'd been there a couple of weeks, fell in love with its people. And because often it was little children dealing with epilepsy and parents trying to support them. Um, I worked there for seven years. And then I moved over to, to MS. Seven, years, a, seven years is incredible in a job you weren't too fond of. Yes, exactly. And then 15 years at MS almost. Wow. I know. And, yeah, um, I guess my passion, which, you know, I discovered, I guess, along was in, in, in terms, and I think there's always a story that isn't heard. There's always things that people have to talk about and there's not enough space and not enough people listening and I certainly feel that to be true in terms of um, disability chronic illness those sorts of things we talk about that and there's a lot written there's so many theories and that sort of thing written about um, grief after bereavement and, and that's also a passion of mine but there's there's not enough um, written in in support I think of, of of disability or chronic illness. Before we before we um, talk a bit more about the disability and the grief and bereavement, just noticing the journey you had of wanting to start social work to work in a family violence capacity and then just taking whatever job you got, what advice would you have for people in that same position now? So maybe going through job hunting and having maybe a really clear idea of, I really want to get into this area, um, you know, how, how can they be more flexible and what are some of the advantages of, of having an open mind? I think it was a growth experience I had to have. I'm a person with a disability myself. And so I was running scared from that sort of thing because everyone thought that I was going to go into the, into social work to look after people with disability. And, you know, we have misconceptions out there. And I'll tell you one misconception that I, I think is, 
is um, something that social workers who are wanting to do some counselling may need to know about, Marie, and that is that not everyone with disabilities wants to be around others with disability. You know? Um, how often do you see people sort of, oh, but we found this great support group or this great peer support group for people. And what you need to do is to check with your client first to see if they're interested in that. Um, so for me, it was the journey that perhaps I had to take <laughs> because it taught me so much and taught me that, you know, what I knew about disability was totally different to what people acquiring a disability later in life or, you know, I, I was supporting parents of children with epilepsy and family members and had all sorts of things, you know, the stories I could tell you, but, you know, happen along the way where, you know, um, for example, a, a family came in one day and um, there was uh, mum and dad and there was auntie and uncle and all different people came in to discuss this particular child epilepsy. And, and this man walked over to me and said to me, look, Louise, I'll pay whatever I need to pay. My nephew just can't have epilepsy. And, you know, so you're dealing with all sorts of reactions from, from people. And um, so I guess in terms of to, to the new graduates from today or people who, you know, set off down, down, down the road thinking that they're going to go a certain way, sometimes the road less travelled or the road that we didn't think we'd travel on, just as interesting. Yeah, that's such a um, beautiful story, Louise. <laughs> it's just, yeah. I mean, it has me thinking, I often tell the students I work with that when we're dealing or working with humans, we're going to have the full range of the human experience. So even if your passion lies, let's say, in mental health and you end up working in a disability service, people with disabilities still have mental health. So you can still bring in exactly. all those tools, you know, even family violence. We know that families with, with, disabilities. A, yeah. with a child with a disability have higher rates of divorce and separation and there's all those extra power dynamics and you can still work with that lens or bring in a bit more of that area of interest into almost any role. You, you can. And, and it's interesting you say that, Marie. Speaking of that, um, you know, I, I think sometimes uh, just as, you know, I, I don't, I can say this, I guess, as a person with a disability myself, I, I'm totally blind. And that does not become my excuse for not living, not treating people nicely, not... Um, you know, and I guess I've, I've seen a gamut of that where, you know, um, people will say, I guess, can show signs of violence, can be aggressive or whatever, and almost, you know, the family puts up with that because of the disability. And so I think you're right that, you know, as a disability social worker, maybe the family violence social worker doesn't get to see that, but that at different times I've seen that over the years. Mm. So you, you got to um, touch on some of the things that originally piqued your interest. Absolutely. 
Um, I, I remember, um, and I can tell you a funny story that um, a family were going through a terrible time, <clears throat> and um, and the young um, son who was approaching thirty um, had epilepsy, and he would um, do things that you know he would just get angry with his life and his lot in life, and he um and 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 be violent and so on occasions if um mum didn't cook him the meal that he liked he would um do things like kick a hole in the crystal cabinet um and so they brought him into me at the epilepsy foundation many years ago and uh, one of the things that happened was that there was a whole family meeting and there he was and our office and the office we're working on in was a huge MIMS drug guide. And they're like huge big family Bible, you know, really, really heavy books. And I was um, a little bit challenging of him at this particular time. So he picked up the book and held it above my head. And I could feel, could sense what he was doing. But what worked well for me was that he didn't know that. So I just kept talking, just didn't react. And he's standing there holding this book and the book's getting heavier and heavier. And eventually he put the book down and sat down. Wow. What do you yeah. think was happening for him in that moment? I think just that whole threatening you and you're not being threatened you're not sort of you know and, and I think it was a it was a scene that um I suppose I think sometimes that you know as a as a person with a disability myself I can sometimes get away with um saying things because people you know often often the comeback will be um you know you don't understand. It's not your experience. You know, you don't know how hard my life is. And my answer to that is that no, no one does. No one knows another's life experience. Mm. It, it makes me think a little bit about um, the idea of enabling behaviour and how Ooh. families try really hard to maybe keep the peace and get through day to day. Ooh. But sometimes, without meaning to, it's reinforcing the behaviour that you're trying to get rid of. Absolutely, and you know, you you get something like a diagnosis of epilepsy, a diagnosis of MS, even a diagnosis of cancer—all different things—and they pull up the heartstrings. You know, they really can be up upsetting and um, I guess it can be a to sort of reassess how you're doing in your life, all that sort of thing. But, you know, for family members watching someone go through that, it can then sort of add to the, to the excuses for behaviours. Mm. So we... And if you think about the stress that... Mm. Yeah, yeah, keep going. Go on. Oh, if you think about the stress involved in, around a diagnosis, 
you know, or something like that, you know, um, in a way it's, it's sort of going to bring out um, more of, of, of the sort of or the um, maybe the, the reaction that, that, that we're not or that we're wanting to curb. Mm. So we, we were going to talk a bit as well about the idea of bereavement and, and grief in particular with a chronic illness. So what are some of the things that you've noticed in that space when somebody you're working with or have worked with, how they start to come to terms with their diagnosis and not be that person who then uses it as an opportunity to be not a great person or be rude or or abrupt? I I think... um you know, there's, people talk about, there's all different grief theories, Marie, that people like, you know, I think we've gone a little bit beyond the stages theory, but some, some people still love the, the um, stages that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross once talked about, um, or the tasks of mourning, those sorts of things. Um, I I don't tend to opt towards those theories, but, you know, I think that one of the things that happens for people with disabilities or people with um, chronic illnesses is that the grief is non-finite, you know. It it may not be something that stops. So you look at something like MS and, you know, I used to sort of joke with my clients and say it was the gift that kept on giving. <laughs> because you you might um, you know get used to the fact that you've got um, uh, a left leg that you know drags, and then you start to have issues with your right hand. Um, so I think it's it's an ongoing thing, and I think that you know sometimes, for, especially for people with neurological conditions, um, for example that, you know, there's a lot that can't be seen around chronic illness, disability, that sort of thing. So, you know, for example, people with MS, they experience huge fatigue and heat intolerance and things like that. And, you know, they're not things that people can see. They're invisible. So, and I think, you know, we talk about the importance that, you know, the the person's family and friends and other systems play and you know often it will be a matter of people not understanding that and sometimes it's because they don't want to understand that in terms of they don't want to see their their loved one as as losing um you know some of these capacities or not being able to do things and so when it's um less visible it's easier to sort of push that down and say, oh, you know, everyone gets tired or, you know, those sorts of things. That's an interesting one because I I guess as... I was going to say it overlaps a bit with some of the stigma of mental illness where if you can't see see it um, Mm. and and fatigue and that kind of pain that's not a, a very visible... Uh, disability I think can get under um, supported and maybe under recognized yes and and I think you know uh, intellectual disability you know someone and or, or say for example someone with um, MS uh, is 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 having some cognitive issues 
where they might not be as fast in terms of processing their thoughts or, or um, you know, might not feel comfortable talking about. So I remember speaking to a client once, Marie, who had, we had this great conversation and, you know, she felt really much better after talking to me about a few things. And we were it was back many years ago now. And she joked with me at the end and she said, the only problem with this, Louise, is that, you know, right now I'm taking in everything we've talked about. In two hours' time, I'll be struggling to remember what we talked about. And so I think for social workers starting out, for example, one of the things that you need to not be afraid of doing is talking about how does this impact you? What do you see? Um, and, I, you know, I, I'm someone that puts it out there. I guess Marie probably worked that out by now. So I say to, to, to the young <laughs> social workers or the new graduates, you know, you're talking to someone with MS, for example, or whatever, you know, talk about sex. Talk about the unspoken things. You know, how's it showing up for you? Um, and, and I think in terms of resources and things, there's some, you know, um, uh, Elizabeth Bruce and Cynthia Schultz wrote a book called Non-Finite Loss and Grief, which was published in about 2001, I think. And that was a great book. Um, another area that I love um, looking at with my clients is um, what they call disenfranchised grief. And that's playing into the same sort of area. It's unrecognised grief. Read up on these things, but then don't be afraid to ask who you, the person that you're dealing with, what is this like for you? How do you know? I'm I'm working with a wonderful client at the moment, and she, what, she's in a wheelchair. She was in a wheelchair very early on in the piece with MS. A lot of people don't use wheelchairs with MS, but she does. And she says to me, "I don't like it when people constantly are asking me why are you in a wheelchair." Now, as a blind person who's been blind for fifty years. I say to you, if you've got a question of me, ask it. So that's the difference in the experience. And so I guess, you know, if you can actually get someone to to tell you this is how I like to deal with it, this is this is what I talk about, this is what, you know, I don't feel comfortable with or, you know, this is my experience can, can really help them to, to feel heard. It, for some reason, as you were talking, what came to mind to me was while I – worked in in disability in particular with physical disability I found that sometimes we had higher expectations of people with the more disadvantage they had so we were like well you should know that you need to eat this because you'll feel better and you know you and we had these really strict regimented plans when we wouldn't follow that advice ourselves sometimes and it had me thinking of I don't know if you've seen that show where it's um I think it's called like an aged care nursing home for three-year-olds or something like that where they get a whole bunch of kindergarten kids to hang out with people in an aged care facility. And the whole point is to find activities that are fun and meaningful to get people moving and connecting and playing rather than just saying you need to do your 30 minutes of weight-bearing exercises today. Like that makes me think on, on our side, it's our job to find 
ways to engage people and encourage yep. them and not put that back on and fi- Yeah. Yeah, and find ways to, you know, I think be authentic to, to you know, um, I, I know, I understand that there's a place and there really is for reflective listening, but what we don't want to sound is wooden. Mm-hmm. And we don't want to create, you know, I, 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 one of the things I've always said to my students is step down into that muck and the mud because, you know, to quote from an old song by Dr. Hook, it's one step from the jungle to the zoo. You don't know, you know, it's not a them and us situation. We, we don't know where we're going to end up, the things that are going to happen to us. And I, I think that, you know, if we can sort of see the commonalities with our clients and understand, you know, how, how, how you know, that grief would feel for us and, um, if, if we were sort of not being seen or we felt that people were judging us or we felt that, you know, um, there's an expectation that you just need to get on with life or, or, or that you don't get on with life. So how do you find that balance of encouraging someone to to know that it's okay not to feel okay, but then also encouraging that process of acceptance and and grieving and then mm. taking the next step to to live with constraints that of their body or this circumstance? Like that's a very difficult balance. Yeah. It really is. And you're going to get it wrong sometimes. And I get it wrong often. You know, we, we do. We, we, um, we say things. We, you know, some people don't like the idea of, of, of them grieving a disability. I think, um, you know, I can well relate to that because I think that, you know, as a young woman, I was particularly into my blindness doesn't matter. And so I think it's, um, it's about accepting that you're going to get it wrong and trying your best and, you know, getting people to talk about their experience but also being being prepared to to, to challenge. And, and one of the things I often say to people is that, you know, it's the small steps that make us free. So, you know, if I can get people to take some small steps um and you know even things like um you know if you're tired your disability your chronic illness whatever is is um you know something that impacts your fatigue whatever you know yes that is something you're going to need to learn to live with so what can we do to make that more possible to live with and you know it might be about and I think this is because it can be particularly good because it's about pulling in the networks, finding the resources. Like, you know, with fatigue, for example, it might be, you know, getting a um, an, an occupational therapy assessment or something. In some expertise, which just mind the situation. Hmm. I think that's a really a really good way of talking about it. I I have a client who has a vision impairment and 
you know, it's trying to find that right balance of, I'm not saying there's nothing that you can or can't do, but in the context of our conversations, what's the best way for me to present information to you that's going to maximize its impact. And, you know, yeah. that, that's helped so much of being able to, there are some things that if I just print out and hand to her, are very difficult for her to read. So we have to zoom in, we print it on bigger paper or I scan and send things electronically so she can zoom in on her iPad with her fingers. And that just took a few minutes at the start of one of our sessions just to kind of work that out. And I think it's made it's made things a lot easier because you have to call, not the elephant in the room, but it's you have a vision impairment. How can I help you with this? Yeah, yes. Absolutely. And you, it might be that you, um, um, you know, that you have like the awareness, like when you're developing forms, that sort of thing. If she's got to fill in forms that you might say, you know, would you like some help filling this in? Can I, can I write for you? Can I, whatever. Um, or do you prefer to do these things yourself? Mm. You know, um, What advice would you give uh, social workers to consider about reflecting on their own privilege? So it's been a topic that's been talked about a lot at the moment with race and gender, but there's so many other privileges and part of that is also being able-bodied. So how can people check in with their own privilege and their own assumptions and not put that responsibility back on their clients to educate them? Be prepared to get it wrong, but as a person with a disability myself, I'm I don't find your able-bodiedness, if you like, something to I don't want I, I don't want you not to have that because I don't have that. Does that make sense? Mm. So good on you, Marie, for thinking through what you do with your person with vision impairment. I love that. I love that people try. Um, you know, I'm, I'm the one that, you know, says to people, to other blind people, you know, it's people are going to get it wrong. People do ridiculous things. People reach out and pat my guide dog as he's crossing a road. <laughs> Like, don't do that. It's not safe, you know. But people are also, you know, the, 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 these are the same people that will often, you know, come up to us and ask us if we need any help or something like that. So, you know, I, I think um, don't be ashamed of the fact that you have what you have. I think it makes me think, I think some people get scared to, they don't want to ask someone if they need help. So then they say nothing. And, and I remember seeing a guy trying to go up a slight incline on his wheelchair and it wasn't motorized and about 20 people walked past him and no one said, just, I'd rather Ooh. offend him and say, Hey, do you need a hand? Then just let him. And he's like, that would be great. So it took me 30 seconds. It could have taken him five, 10 minutes to get up that incline. Ooh. Okay. What do you suggest yeah. to people and that, asking? Like, do you need a hand? Hmm. Do, do you need a hand is a great question. And if they don't, don't be offended. 
you know. Um, but I, I put it back on people with disability all the time and, and um, have been known, as you might imagine, Marie, to make myself relatively unpopular in certain cases. <laughs> um, uh, and say to them, excuse me, you know, these are the people that will assist you. And so, you know, um, it, it, it's, it's about educating people and it's about learning and it's about saying to people. And, you know, um, I, I work in um, the NDIS space and as well as in my private practice. And, you know, so it's, I'm always saying to my colleagues and to, you know, um, really anyone who listen that we just need to, um, you know, see that person as, as who they are and that their whole identity is not their disability, you know, or their chronic illness. Mm. Um, one of my very good friends died of breast cancer nine years ago. And when she was diagnosed with breast cancer, we were absolutely devastated and I laughed because she rang me up a week later. I see you and seen her times that week and all this stuff. And um, I said, she came over and she sat down in front of me, Marie, and she said, um, Louise, you're not talking about this and you need to talk about it. Mm. And I said, I'm devastated. I can't talk about it with you because this is happening to you. And she looked at me blankly and said, well, who else are you going to talk about it with? And what she was saying was she's still my friend. Yeah. And she was still my friend to the end, you know? And, and I think that's, that's the thing too, that, you know, um, we, you know, I often say to people, if you're going to have a party, I'm probably not the best person to come over and help you set up, but I can make the sausage rolls. <laughs> you find your way of, of contributing. And I think it's about sort of let, letting people do that. That's beautiful. So before we wrap up and I'll put those two books that you mentioned in the show notes, are there any, I mean, any other resources that you would recommend to people who want to expand their knowledge either in the disability space or in grief and bereavement, chronic illness? Um, I think there's some, um, you know, in terms of um, resources, look at your I love to hear from clients themselves. I love personal experience. It's one of the best ways we, we get um, ed education that really is very meaningful. So, you know, look up your TED Talks and people talking about their experience. Um, on my website, Marie, which is um, www.louisepearson.com.au, um, there is um, a resources section and I've one of my favourite TED Talks in there for people to look at. Um, and, you know, so I think there's, there's, things, there's things like that. Um, and, you know, look at, there's a, um, look at practice groups, look at supervision. I think supervision is very, very important because 
some of these things dealing with, I can joke about it with you this morning, but some of these things that we're dealing with, they'll touch your heart and they'll break it. And one thing I would say to you as a social worker is the day they don't break your heart is to hand back your degree. You know, it's okay to be sad. It's okay to to be affected by our clients. If we're not, there's something wrong, I think. And so if you are impacted, then you need to talk about it. And, you, you know, and especially we've all sort of been young social workers, whether we did it later in life or whether we did it when we were young, we're still young social workers. And mm. so there are lots of places like hospitals and, and um, different sorts, you know, child protection is your last podcast or one of the last ones. I think it was the last one that you did. Yeah, Fantastic. that came out um, yesterday. <laughs> yeah. Um, but oh, I have a look at it, guys. Um, but, yeah, you know, the, the, often there's not the space in that environment for people to really debrief. And I think debriefing is very important. So, you know, I'm thinking about doing something like starting a supervision, a peer supervision group, mm-hmm. because um, this year I've expanded my practice. So I see clients for counselling um, on a Saturday on a Monday and I do online work. And, um, you know, it can be a bit of a lonely experience in private practice. Mm. Um, so I think it's about sort of building our networks Beautiful. Thanks so much, Louise. And I'm sure we could do another episode um, on on disability. And I mean, there's just so many beautiful things to talk about on that. So thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been lovely to talk to you. Thanks, Louise. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode's resources. And don't forget to click subscribe and review us wherever it is you get your podcasts.